The title is Can we compare Aquinas' philosophy with modern science? I will speak. This is the scheme, introductory remarks, aspects of compatibility, cosmology and the origin of the universe, determinism and indeterminism in an evolutionary world, neuroscience and philosophy of mind and conclusion. Now, I start. Why can we think of a possible relation between Aquinas' philosophy and modern science? At what can be the interest of making such a comparison? What can be the purpose of this operation? There is a long tradition of drawing comparisons between the philosophy of Aristotle and Aquinas, as we saw here, for example, in this uh, session, especially between their natural philosophy and the achievements of modern science, particularly in Thomistic philosophers of nature, consider Henen, now times Selvaggi, Maritain, Wallace, and many others. In many issues, from the point of view of our Thomist, this is understandable since natural philosophy in Aristotle and Aquinas represented a synthesis of the physical world in their time within the framework of the ancient natural sciences, physics, biology, as well as mathematics and astronomy. Such a synthesis constituted in Aquinas a very successful and insightful organic unity in continuity with metaphysics and theology. This whole vision of the physical universe can be related to the contemporary understanding of nature obtained from modern sciences. This can be done from a historical point of view in order to see the differences, but also to discover some possible common points or even the possibility to get a new insight of nature which could be philosophically fruitful. Historical and scientific comparisons are helpful if properly executed. They need to preserve the divergence of the approaches, especially if the comparison is accomplished between very distant systems of thought. It is necessary, moreover, to recognize the various levels, not only between the terms of the comparison, but even in them. There are various levels in Aquinas' philosophical writings, and obviously in contemporary science. For example, one thing is quantum physics as such, and another is the range of its different philosophical interpretations. Basically, the comparison is possible because philosophical positions are not incommensurable in the Cunian sense. And even in science, it is controversial if there can be an absolute incommensurability between views and concepts in different scientific paradigms. Taking account of many possible comparative networks between the scientific Thomistic corpus, including Aristotle's as a background, and all that we currently know thanks to modern science. In this talk, I will briefly mention some elements that could be relevant for the discussion. The underlying basis that makes possible the comparison we are talking about is twofold. Naturalism and rationalism. Naturalism. The Aristotelian scientific enterprise takes seriously natural explanations because it sees nature as intelligible and the serving investigation according to multiple causes. Nature cannot be understood from above, that is to say from only primary causes. It can be probably known from below, that is from the analysis 
of the approximate causes. Therefore, sciences are relatively autonom autonomous and cannot be deduced from metaphysics nor from theology. Rationalism. Following the Greek tradition, Aristotle and Aquinas are convinced that reason, the faculty capable of natural, natural things, is the instrument man can use to disclose the principles of nature and consequently to put order in human life and also in nature through technological interventions. According to this idea of nature and science, I dare to say continuity between some Thomistic views and modern science. The big change, the scientific revolution, was mostly methodological and obviously this led to many discoveries and promoted the alliance between science and technology. The main areas wherein comparisons between Aquinas and modern science have been made by many authors are epistemology, theory of science, cosmology, the universe, creation, evolutionary biology, and neuroscience. The comparisons are historical, but Thomists are interested in something more. It is, is it possible to understand modern science using Aristotelian and Thomistic principles, for example, the four causes, the theory of substance and essence, the solace principle of life, and so on. If it is, then we need to remove from these principles their instantiation in clearly false examples proper to the old science. For example, the theory of the four elements, the distinction between heavenly and earthly bodies, or the thesis of the circular movement of heavenly bodies, as well as geocentrism. A very helpful distinction unknown to the ancients was used by many philosophers, for example, Maritain, in order to avoid bad comparisons between Aquinas and modern science. This is the distinction between philosophy and science. Aristotle, followed by Aquinas, distinguished between metaphysics, physics, and mathematics, or between metaphysics and particular sciences. Physics was fused, rather than confused, with philosophy of nature. Today, we clearly distinguish between physics and philosophy of nature, but this distinction had no sense even in the 17th century. This created new problems, which were not present in Aristotle's and Aquinas' horizon. Nobody could say today that the theory of elementary particles is theosophical. The comparison between what we nowadays consider scientific knowledge and normal science in Aristotle and Aquinas, not philosophy, is possible but has little philosophical interest in my view. We could only say in this respect that the ancient science, if not completely mistaken, was propedeutic for modern science. But some coincidences and anticipations could be simply anecdotic and with little significance, for example, of the old theories of spontaneous generation of living beings in relation to evolutionary theory. In the prospective comparison, sometimes it is emphasized the antagonism between the old and the new. Old science would amount to be, in this sense, a formidable obstacle for the progress of science. In most cases, I think the obstacle is sociological. The more prestigious is an author or a scientific view, the more dangerous could be for future revisions. Aristotelianism was an obstacle for the rise of modern science, not because of its principles, but because Aristotelians took the explanation of his master, covering all kinds of topics as immune to critique.
Now I go to aspects of compatibility. In the following considerations, I will suggest some possible elements of agreement or disagreement between Thomistic philosophy and contemporary science. Using the method, the method of putting questions that can shape a more precise geography of the possible comparisons, I will take loosely the distinction between science and philosophy unless it will be clearly relevant. First, uh, questions. Which are the aspects of intomistic natural worldview incompatible with modern science? And what is their significance in philosophy? As for the evaluation, notice that the incompatibility can be absolute, partial, essential, important, surmountable, and so on. Compatibilities and incompatibilities not always are to be drastically opposed. The following points can be discussed and better refined. The intent to find and guide them. So you see the columns, incompatible elements, philosophical significance. So the geocentrics, I think that is not essential. <clears throat> Qualitative uh, physics, not mathematical, it is important. Earthly and heavenly bodies, not essential, in my view. Deficient mechanics lacking notions of force, mass, inertia, energy, it is important. No distinction between science and philosophy, it is surmountable. Essential is disputable. There is a need to clarify the sense of knowing the essence. Conceptual approach, empirically poor, it is surmountable. Dogmatism, not hypothetical view, incorrect in many aspects. Purely phenomenal approach, not using mathematics, lacking experimental tests, correct, but surmountable. Not atomic view of nature, surmountable. For Ptolemaic astronomy, Euclidean geometry, not essential. Static vision of nature, not evolutionary, important, but surmountable. <clears throat> second, well, before this second question, I make some remarks. Uh, the, the selected items clearly indicate the distance between the Thomistic worldview and the modern one. But the majority of them pertain to the scientific description of material things which radically changed in modern times and even more in the last century and decades. Now we can try to ascertain whether there are some philosophical issues of the Thomistic worldview which can be seen as compatible with modern science, since they are philosophical, they are general, <clears throat> they are general but profound, and can be separated from the specific description of the world. Moreover, sometimes they can be enlightening for overcoming reductionism, which is a constant philosophical temptation, accompanying the achievements of modern science. For example, mechanics derived from the new science of mechanics in other times. Reductionist is a view that takes some scientific approach as definitive and essential, excluding other views as inessential or non-productive. Reductionist, in, in some way, transforms science in philosophy, not acknowledging the partiality of science. To hold the natural sciences, all that we can seriously know of nature is equivalent to take science as a philosophy, since it is an essential interpretation of what there is. But this is a dangerous assumption because 
many different aspects and layers of reality cannot be understood with only one methodological approach. Now the second question, which aspects of Thomistic philosophy are compatible and even useful for a philosophical interpretation of modern scientific achievements? The point I am putting forward is not only mere compatibility, but also speculative relevance. A real Thomistic philosopher, I suspect, does not attempt to simply look for a confirmation of his principles in the new domains discovered by, by modern science. The interesting question is not, for example, to confirm the principle of causality facing the special difficulties which can be drawn from problems raised by quantum mechanics. More than that, quantum mechanics, as any other new scientific paradigm, could be the occasion for, the occasion for a richer development of the metaphysical principles inherited from Aquinas philosophy. I point, I point out some items regarding this problem. The evaluation indicates the relevance of the principles if we want to face the philosophical problems posited in the new scientific domains. Compatible items, relevance. Naturalness, there is a full continuity. Autonomy of sciences, there is a, an epistemic continuity. Empirical, some continuity. Causal explanations, continuity in some regards. Inductive and deductive method, continuity in some regards. Appeal to principles, logical continuity. Determinism, but also indeterminism, a place for chance in nature. Continuity in contemporary science, not in modern science, but in contemporary science. Timeless cosmology, everlasting cosmic spheres, agree agreement with timeless cosmologies, pre-Big pre Bang. Contingent universe, continuity in some regards. Now, I, I will consider two points of this di uh, diagram. The first in relation to cosmology, the second regarding the problem of determinism or indeterminism in an evolutionary world. So first, cosmology and the origin of the universe. Of course, <coughs> many points that I will touch uh, will are related to the exposition and presentation of Professor Clavier, Marta Borgo, today Marius Tabasek, uh, uh, and Devenport, and all. In its initial presentations, Big Bang cosmology today universally accepted and including the inflationary extensions seem to demonstrate the absolute origin of time from an initial point, a cosmic singularity. Many authors, believers, associated the time to the moment of the divine creation of the universe according to Genesis. But this agreement was weakened when a number of scientists hypothesized a previous, not to be understood temporarily, quantum background from which several Big Bang-like events could have been produced, even infinite. Our temporarily initiated universe would be then only one of the innumerable multiverses. The hypothesis cannot be empirically tested, but neither can be excluded. The happy coincidence with the revealed truth of creation was no longer sustainable. Here is where Thomistic metaphysics of creation becomes relevant 
for a correct interpretation of the scope of cosmological models. Thomas Aquinas said, as we know, that the eternity of the world invoked by Aristotle was not inconsistent with the created condition of the universe, because creation out of nothing is not a temporal causal relation, but a permanent ontological dependence of creatures from the creature. <clears throat> the potential. Nothing prevents that was what is always needs something other to exist in as much as it has its being not from itself but from another. Whereas one can see the biblical progressive account of creation along different phases as the formation of the earth, the plants, the animals, man, <clears throat> in an overall agreement with the scientific narration of the evolution to claim from both sides that our universe was born, nevertheless, the total ontological dependence from God, that is, the metaphysical notion of creation, does not force us to understand the creative ex nihilo in a temporal way. According to Thomas Aquinas, the backward analysis of transformations and generating preceding causes are a stop in a beginning of the past. <clears throat> it is not impossible that man could be generated by man infinitely, in infinitely. This point is held by Thomas only as a theoretical possibility in agreement with his thesis that supports the compatibility of an infinite series of generations with its timeless dependence from an essential cause. The reason is that generative causation is not a complete causation, but only partial. The efficient cause of transformations, read evolution, is not a complete cause. It is a cause of becoming, theory, not a cause of being, essay. Ancestors and are partial causes, not essential causes, and they can be infinite in theory. The causes of previous in time, because they cause through movements that require time. The efficient cause operates through movement and therefore precedes its, its, its time, in time its effect. This is the reason that enables Aquinas to accept the theoretical possibility of the everlasting cycles of time in the Aristotelian model of the universe, which in no way is incompatible with its created condition. <clears throat> now, the <clears throat> absolute beginning in essay is not necessarily then the beginning of an initial instant far back in time. There is, no, there is no incompatibility between being created by God and existing since ever. The point is helpful in order to avoid false apologetics from both sides, that is, from theology as well as from atheists. The satisfaction of seeing in the Big Bang a confirmation of creation, or on the contrary, the annoyance with which some atheists interpreted the Big Bang cosmology as something that would force them to believe in God encompassed the truth of creation. <clears throat> the same can be said in relation, for example, to Stephen Hawking's claim that a cosmological quantum gravity model avoiding the initial singularity renders meaningless the idea of a creator. Hawking was not a theologian, but he, always, he was always worried with the explanation of the origin of the universe through the appeal to God. Even when in the absolute temporal beginning of the universe, 
He imagined God simply as deciding the boundary conditions that enable the appearance of our universe. A pre-existing quantum gravity framework seemed to him a self-sufficient reality capable of producing our universe. Hawking attempted to intervene in theology from his cosmological approach. If this is done, then an inverse relation is possible, that is, to intervene from a theological point of view in some cosmological conclusions, apparently disclaiming a theological basis. Precisely in a Thomistic view, one can say that Hawking's self-contained universe perhaps is not impossible theoretically, but that it is not a primary all-explaining principle, making unnecessary the appeal to a personal creator. It's Necessity is not absolute. Thomas Aquinas could say that it was a kind of primary matter, would say, ruled by quantum laws and energy, but without order, endowed with a necessity of alien. There is no absolute reason to postulate that this primordial, primordial framework contains the necessity of its own existence as the unsemblant necessary being constrained to exist in order to avoid contradiction. Hawking's metaphysical position, in some way, goes back to the pre-Socratics with some additional mathematical platforms. <clears throat> now, let's go to determinists and indeterminists in, in, in an evolutionary world. Facing the, the in the configuration of the universe, but especially in the appearance of life on Earth, and its biological growth and differentiation, the intriguing question is necessary and predetermined in its causes, or if it is contingent and then subjected to many chances. For example, the existence of favorable environmental conditions that allow, allow the emergence and flourishing of natural potentialities in living beings. If the latter is the case, and it seems to be so, at least in life evolution, then teleology in nature seems to be self-induced. The evolution does not seem to follow a predetermined path, but shows itself as a self-selective accidental process with many possibilities, therefore a contingent process, including elements of necessity, potentialities, but also per accidents events. This is not incompatible with finalism. Once we have an emerging species developing in nature, it behaves as an end in itself, while survives until it disappears, of course. I don't see this feature of evolution as chaotic or completely opposed to teleology, unless we have a rigid deterministic view of teleology. This is another point where in Thomistic natural theology could be relevant in philosophical problems connected with evolution. The appeal to God as the first cause does not entail a deterministic view of natural causality if we understand by deterministic view the fact that everything that happens is <clears throat> absolutely necessary and couldn't have been otherwise. If today rains, it has been absolutely predetermined in its causes and to change this would imply to change the initial conditions of the, of the universe. According to Thomas Aquinas, God <coughs> created <coughs> necessary secondary causes of the natural events, but also contingent secondary causes which could fail in the production of their effects. 
Therefore, random events are not incompatible with the design of the creator. We can see this in contragentes, for example. <clears throat> Chance does not mean absence of causality, and it can be understood as causality per accidents in Aquinas, in that the proper intensio or natural effect of a cause contains a collateral effect which it is outside the scope of the natural cause. For example, that a stone falling from a mountain should kill an animal. A random effect is then an effect favorable for a theological system caused by another system, underlying <clears throat> or environment, environmental, which is not controlled by the former. In the Aristotelian atomistic physical context, random effects are normal in earthly living individuals. In an evolutionary framework, the possibility of chance has very important consequences in that it allows the emergence of the structure of species. <clears throat> chance is thus crucial for the history of nature. It seems that if accepted, it would imply that there is no real necessity in the configuration of living systems. The problem is irrelevant as far as we remain in the inanimate world, but is dramatic in the history of living systems. <clears throat> this could be related to the anthropic principle that seems to imply that cosmic initial parameters, though possibly infinite, are just those that exactly fit with, within very narrow margins if a chance should be given for the appearance of life on Earth. If nature evolves so contingently, up to the point that it can be said that we are born by chance, but not without precise conditions, a condition that at the individual level was always considered normal, then the problem for a believer is how to reconcile God's creative intention with the evolution of a contingent world, especially regarding the appearance of homo sapiens. And even for a non-believer, this is a problem concerning the very sense of the evolved universe, an accidental world where life is not necessary and even improbable seems to be pointless. The extraordinary perfection of the universe, especially in the realm of living beings, despite its contingence, constitutes the classical basis for the argument of the divine intentional creation. God creates for some intelligent purpose. See the fifth way in Aquinas for the demonstration of God's existence. <clears throat> but now, the problem posed is how can one figure out the way whereby God creates and guides an indeterministic evolving universe. Two extremes seem to be inappropriate. One is the reductive view of confining God to the only first creative intervention, <clears throat> letting evolve the universe on its own with indifference, deism, not interventionist. The other extreme is the recourse to several divine interventions throughout the history of nature. In order to guide evolution in a certain direction, and therefore to remedy the lack of purpose of pure indeterminism. This second solution seems ad hoc, and it is rather odd. Why should God create indeterministic processes just to supply the lack of order with continuous interventions? 
But then the temptation is to imagine God as providing some very precise initial conditions of the universe in order to see, realize a specific design in such a way that it should be ruled out or it could be attributed to our, our ignorance of hidden causal elements underlying in the course of the events. Can Thomas Aquinas help us to solve this problem? Not directly, in my view, because this was not a problem in the cosmological context of the ancients. Though some of them could accept, accept the possibility of an evolutionary course of the universe, as we can read in Aquinas when he agrees, with some reading of the first chapter of the Genesis inspired but in Saint Augustine. A possible solution could be to investigate how God's providence intervenes in human affairs and consequently in their relationship with biological, climatic, or general physical conditions. The notion of divine providence has no sense if worldly events were all predetermined. If some happenings are contingent, not necessary, the divine providence means that God takes care of what is going on and can act in some way or another, not only through miracles, but also via ordinary secondary causes in order to reach some desired effect. For example, to protect somebody in a trick or in the case that he or she faces certain risks, for example, to contract a disease and so on. This is obviously the basis of the utility of prayers. Aquinas claims that prayers would be useless if everything should happen with an absolute necessity against stoicism. Thomas' concern here tends primarily to defend God's immutability. We do not pray to alter the divine disposition, but to infiltrate what God determined to be fulfilled through the prayers of the saints. So the prayers change the evolution of the world, maybe. This can be done thanks to the timeless divine vision and action in the world. God does not act from the past, as our imagination may think. And then he cannot see things projected in the future. There is no future for God. Thus the Creator can arrange this sexy order of things to happen, taking account of the prayers he decides to accomplish, not at the beginning of time, but timelessly. Though this is hard to imagine because we are not living in the eternity. I suggest, on account of the divine providence, prayers and natural determination could be applied not only to human daily affairs and to history, but could be transferred to the evolution of life on earth addressed in some way to the appearance of man in accordance to a clear divine design. This seems to be necessary if we want to preserve real contingency the biological evolution, making it compatible with God's plans. But how can we imagine God's providential action apart from miracles over nature and not only over human free action? This latter point is not the, the object of my consideration. With, uh, with a brief parenthesis, consider, for example, simple case. If I pray that a heat age will go away and I am heard by God, and if this is not a miracle, how did God arrange the course of events to do for me this paper? I don't think we need to suppose a special divine intervention in the initial conditions of the universe in order to fulfill my petition. Anyway, the divine favors, not miracles, 
cannot be empirically tested, and the majority of prayers regard failures, not miracles. Something similar could be said of God's providence on the earthly conditions that make possible life, especially human life, with all its risks, some of which depend, of course, of human responsibility today, nowadays. Granted that the display of natural causations endowed with many potentialities in a pluralistic environment is capable of, of landscapes characterized by complexity, something which is contingent but also admirable and very telling of God's grandeur. Do we need to invocate special divine actions in order to accomplish a creative plan, at least addressing to the appearance of man in the context of evolution? To answer to this question, <clears throat> I want to suggest <clears throat> appeals to uh, <clears throat> the model of the divine providence in human history and also in the life of each person. Could be helpful. The most that can be said in this regard is that the creator knows what is going on, knows its potentialities and risks, and guides the course of the events according to some plan which is very rich and inscrutable, inscrutable with multiple facets which we certainly ignore. Moreover, in human history, God takes account in advance of human free responses to his plans. And consequently, he reigns or permits many situations, wars, <clears throat> for example, knowing also how to obtain good things even from evil and dramatic situations. But it is helpless to try to determine concretely how in his providence, unless we imagine that he arranged things in a deterministic way, which is one, which is what we want to avoid. <clears throat> the province subsists and is open to further debate. The only divine, divine plan we certainly know is his revelation culminating in Christ. And the last point, neuroscience and philosophy of mind. <clears throat> A third topic regarding the comparisons between the Thomistic view and modern science is neuroscience and the philosophy of mind. I present it briefly, but separated from the above issues because I think that here the question goes beyond the simple question of compatibility and incompatibility. More than that, in the midst of the current discussions of the philosophy of mind, which are mainly focused on the problem of the relationship between mind and brain, Thomas Aquinas' hylomorphic view offers an alternative interpretation which can be placed between the extremes of <clears throat> drastic dualism and monistic neurologism. This view is currently not considered by the authors involved in these discussions. Hylomorphism is ignored, perhaps because it is difficult to understand the unity between what is formal and what is material among authors who only know the scientific method. Neuroscience is welcomed by Thomas because Aquinas recognizes the role of the brain in the exercise of psychic functions, both in cognition and affectivity, appetites and passions. Following the Galenic tradition and Avicenna's medicine, Thomas Aquinas conceived the brain as the organ and seat of the higher sensitive faculties, central sense, imagination, memory, cogitative, each of them localized in one of the brain ventricles, though the universal reason remains inconvolable. These functions in cognitive, appetitive, emotional, and behavioral capacities are due and explained by cerebral lesions in Aquinas. 
Even some aggressive or insane sexual actions are attributed by Aquinas not to an immoral behavior, but to a specific pathology. In fact, he believed in the existence of the physiological, of physiological predispositions for some virtues or vices. One may be surprised to read so many naturalistic assertions in Thomas Aquinas in which the brain conditions enable the use of psychic powers. This is because <clears throat> the sensitive powers <clears throat> of certain corporeal organs, if these organs are injured, necessarily their acts are impeded and therefore it also impeded the use of reason. Is, is the text. Accordingly, the optimal relationship between the inner sensitive powers, as imagination, memory, and cogitative, requires a good confirmation of the brain. We read in Sumatology. The degree of intelligence in persons depends in part, in Aquinas, of good physiological and brain conditions. As a consequence, some injuries in certain corporeal organs impede the soul to directly understand itself, self-consciousness and other things, as when there is a brain injury. <clears throat> the following text asserts that what today is called the biological basis of cognitive and ethical virtues. We read, according to the corporeal constitution, some people have positions regarding certain virtues because certain sensitive powers are acts of certain parts of the body whose conformation helps or hinders in their operations and therefore the rational faculties to which those sensitive powers serve. According to this, an individual has a natural aptitude for science, another for fortitude, another for temperance. In this sense, both the intellectual and moral virtues in terms of a certain incoative aptitude are natural to us. But this is not the case regarding their enhancement, because enhancement is related to virtues. This is more than mere, com than mere compatibilism with modern neuroscience. Though in the details and within a normal physiological framework, the neurobiological view assumed by Thomas is very far from modern science, the underlying principles that can be seen schematically in the text quoted above are tenable today and are more naturalistic than one might think if advocating a spiritualistic perspective of human mind. In this sense, Thomas Aquinas' neurophilosophy, so to speak, constitutes a useful tool for a correct interpretation of the contemporary discoveries in the field of neuro and neuropsychiatry. Atomist has no reason to be suspicious of modern neuroscience. Atomist philosophy is very well equipped to dialogue with neuroscience, neuroscientists, more than philosophers following other schools that neglect the importance of natural principles. This is because Aristotelians take seriously the importance of natural sciences, as I said at the start of this talk. The core of Aquinas' philosophy of mind is the substantial unity between human body and soul, which means that higher human operations like thinking, willing, perceiving, are materially rooted in the brain, though in different ways and within specific causal directions. To be rooted doesn't mean to interact, but rather to inform, and therefore to constitute a dynamic and unitary action. 
Sensitive operations such as seeing or speaking possess a formal dimension, sighting as such, and a material dimension, the bodily movements involved in those actions, in that they constitute one psycho psychosomatic action and not two interactive actions. <clears throat> to feel, for example, we read in Aquinas, is not an action of the soul nor of the body, but of the compound of body and soul. Spiritual human operations, though they are strictly immaterial and not organic, are formally united with a sensitive and material basis in the sense, for example, that a free movement of my hand, such as greeting, is one single personal action. If I can use this expression, this is a spiritual somatic action. This is completely different, both from dualistic explanations and from a psychically-physicalist reductive view. I go to a brief conclusion. <clears throat> In the comparison between Aquinas' view of nature and modern science, we pointed out several aspects of a discontinuity and continuity. If we pick out the metaphysical principles concerning the creation of the universe and its evolution, together with some psychological and epistemological elements, the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, taken in a broad sense, and without rigidity, seems today to enjoy the advantage of being able to favor a sound interpretation of the achievements of the contemporary scientific worldview. In this talk, I illustrated sketchy this issue in some crucial aspects in the field of cosmology, evolution, evolution science, and neuroscience. Two centuries ago, two features represented a strong obstacle for a positive relationship between Thomas and modern science. The first one was a mechanicistic view of nature, which was perceived as simply competitive with the Aristotelian philosophy of nature. The contemporary scientific account of nature, paradoxically, is not close to this philosophy, as long as the latter is seen not as competitive, but as an interpretation situated on a philosophical level. The second obstacle is epistemological positivism, which created a barrier between science and philosophy, but this is not the case in our time. The temptation today is rather reductionist, which in some way is an inheritance of the epistemological and ontological principles of Thomas Aquinas serve precisely to avoid this temptation. I finish the title of this talk is Can We Compare Aquinas philosophy with moral science, the answer is definitely yes, we can do this, and it is very fruitful if we agree that the scientific knowledge acquires sense thanks to the intellectual vision afforded by philosophy. So thank you for your talk. Uh, obviously, the, the framework of the comparison between Thomas Aquinas and Paul on the press science is very important. So I was wondering how to use the mystic framework for those aspects of science that uh, we have not mentioned in your talk. Especially, I think, to biology. Unfortunately, Thomas Aquinas didn't study much biology. We have only the beginning of the commentary to Aristotle, the Generazione Corruzione. As far as I know, we don't have a commentary to the Partidus Seminarium. Uh, we have something in the uh, part of Summa Theologia, the first part of the Gathering in Constantinopolis. But we don't have really a domestic thought 
about the living being in such. And this is, in my opinion, a, a great challenge because contemporary science is very sensitive to the world of life. And minor part is about quantum mechanics, but uh, we don't have today, still today, uh, a sound epistemology on quantum mechanics. So in my opinion, we, 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 we are not obliged <laughs> to, to ask Thomas Aquinas to, 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 to provide answers for quantum mechanics. But for biology, perhaps it would be a fruitful field for, for studying and for investigation. Albert de Breed perhaps could help us in could help us in, in providing some fruitful insight in this field. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> well, I, I think that much is done <clears throat> in the confrontation between biology, modern biology, and, and philosophy, uh, not perhaps uh, in Thomas Aquinas, because he was not, had no time to comment the biological writings of Aristotle. But today there is a, a, a very big uh, <clears throat> research in Aristotle in, and, and the interpretation of biology in Aristotelian terms. I, I remember that I heard Bertie, who is a great Aristotelian in Italy, that said in a Thomistic Congress in the Academy that uh, perhaps it could, it could be uh, exaggerated that uh, Aristotle uh, would deserve the Nobel Prize today. <laughs> In, in biology, because some insights that he had. No? But I think that the uh, questions of the essence, not in a logical uh, account of essence, platonic, but really Aristotelian, uh, it is not too difficult to, to relate the nature of living beings as essence, uh, for example, relating uh, autopoiesis and self movement in Aristotle, for example. No? <clears throat> and also the problem of finalism. I got some doctoral thesis of finalism in modern biology with the instrument of Aristotle and also Thomas Aquinas. So the, the, perhaps the problem, the DNA could be related to the formal cause, the, the soul. Many, many authors have done that. Berti, for example. Perhaps the, the, the very important problem is what I touch here is the evolution, and we have talked much this morning about evolution, how to interpret evolution in biology with the instruments, the ontological instruments of Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. Okay. We have time for one question. Father Davenport. Uh, thank you very much. Um, my question is, getting up the uh, interaction that you suggested between sort of uh, philosophy and modern science um, dealt with what are the public corrective uh, uh, responses, so you know, the overstepping of walking on God, the uh, misunderstanding of, uh, uh, or, or misunderstanding of the nature of the mind, uh, the immaterial. Is there, do you see a sense in which a twistic philosophy can be helpfully productive for science? It can help science to do what it does better? <clears throat> Thank you. Well, I sincerely don't think that it is uh, productive for science 
Thomistic philosophy because in generally philosophy is not productive in science. So it is, this is not the task of philosophy. So we, we cannot expect that philosophy brings something new in, in scientific uh, research. But we can expect that it will give, this, uh, give us uh, a good interpretation. And this is the, the essential problem today, because what we need is a good interpretation. So in quantum mechanics, we, we, we can try to apply notions, philosophical notions, causality, uh, prediction, future, which are philosophical problems today discussed, even without a Thomistic framework. So there is a lot of philosophy in philosophers or in scientists that are more inclined to, to do philosophy as they can, sometimes ignoring uh, history of philosophy and so on with some ingenuity. No? But then what the service that uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, gives to us is the, the right interpretation, the right interpretation, uh, <clears throat> which of course correction, no? correction of, of some misinterpretations. So in my view, the problem is always the relation between philosophy and science. Thank you, Professor Sanguinetti.